Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 28, Parakaf Chet of Sefer Eov, the Book of Job. This beautiful chapter is all about Chokhmah a word which shows up four times in these 28 verses and is also at the center of its refrain in verse 12 and in verse 20. Wisdom, where can she be found? Rather than attempting to define the word chokhmah here, it would be wise, pun intended, to let the poetry speak for itself. But first, we have to talk about how this chapter fits into the overall structure of the book. It is possible that chapter 28 is a continuation of Eov's speech, which he started in the previous chapter. After forecasting in that chapter doom on his friends for their dishonesty in conveying God's wisdom, he now explains to them that God's wisdom is not accessible to man at all, and therefore anything they said was complete drivel. On the other hand, if Eov understood all of this, that one cannot completely understand God, or one really can't understand God at all, why would he have been complaining all along about how he's suffering so much and why God is mistreating him? And in fact, why will he continue to uh, make statements about how he really doesn't understand what God is doing to him in chapters 29 through 31? So the quick answer is that Eov has actually learned something from the discourses with his companions. As we saw in the previous chapter, he seems to be coming around to the idea that God does take care of things. Um, and God will punish the wicked. So Eov has been evolving. Also, as we'll see in chapter 29 through 31 in Eov's next speech, while Eov will complain about his lot in life, it will be a very different tone, a much more positive tone. It will seem to come from a a, a much a different person than the one who cursed his, the day he was born on, as he did when he started off in chapter 3. Another possibility is that Eov is not the speaker here, is that the, since the discourse section is over, that is, Eov has had his last word, and then he had another last word because the last speaker so far did not was not able to respond to him, the narrator himself, that is, the author of Sefer Eov, wishes to explain to us, in his own words, uh, why Eov is right, that his friends cannot comprehend God. Now, don't be surprised that the narrator is talking here. While we haven't heard from him for a while, he was the speaking voice in chapter 1 and 2, and he will speak again to conclude the book. So who says that he can only be the speaker to tell a story? Who says that he can't speak to impart his own wisdom as well, even though he never really tells us who he is? Of course, this possibility begs the following question. If this is the author's opinion, why do we need Elihu and why do we need God to speak their opinions? The, if the author is speaking authoritatively, again, pun intended, and in fact there is a certain amount of overlap between his speech and God's speech at the end in chapters, or his two speeches in chapters 38 to 41, then what do we need God to say what the author could have said himself and in fact started to say himself? And note that there is a similarity. As I said, there's a real overlap between those two those two speeches. If this is the author's speech, then the author and the way God speaks at the end. At the end of God's second speech, he says, He is king over all the majestic wild beasts. And in our chapter 28, we read, The majestic wild beast did not tread there. This is the only time that the Aramaic word shachatz is used in all of Tanakh. So there definitely seems to be a literary connection between these two speeches. So to give a tentative answer, perhaps our author 
originally thought to close the book here, in chapter 28, with his own wisdom, but then he changed his mind. Maybe he tried out his book on a trial audience, um, and they said, well, you know, they said, well, Mr. Author of Eov, we don't want to, you know, knock down you off your high horse, but we, we don't really want to hear what you have to say, even if you're speaking as inspired from God. We would rather hear it from God speaking himself. If Eov has been begging to hear from God and that God should show up, it's only fair that God himself should speak. That gets into the idea that um, that there's an editing process to the book, that the author can write a book and then say, you know what, I think I'll write a little bit more. So it gets a little bit complicated. In this form, I, I think maybe it's, it's perhaps best to work with first possibility that Eov is speaking, whether it's a continuation or whether it's simply a poem of wisdom that Eov wrote. And we should look at this poem as a part of his spiritual growth, that he finally understands that there really is a difference between him and God, and that God does not work in the same ways that man does, because God sees different things. And even though that won't close the book, and there's still more to talk about, at least this is a step in the right direction. And now to the chapter itself. I think the key to recognizing this chapter is that there are two types of chokhmah. There is man's chokhmah and God's chokhmah. And that while man's chokhmah gives him the power and majesty to manipulate his natural world, God's chokhmah is that by which he creates and controls the natural world. And therefore, man can only touch this chokhmah, the real chokhmah of God, by attaching himself to God. He can never get it himself. He must follow God, he must follow his moral code, but to understand God in his in the full sense, that he can't do. This wisdom poem has three stanzas, which are demarcated with a refrain, as I mentioned, in verses 12 and 20. The first two stanzas focus on man's chokhmah, in my opinion, as I'll demonstrate in a bit, and the third on God's chokhmah. Indeed, silver has a mine, M-I-N-E, and there is a source from which gold can be refined from. Iron may be taken from the ground, and copper can be smelted from stone. Kates, sam lachoshech, ulchol tachlitu choker, Evan Ofel Vitzalmavet. He sets a terminus to the darkness, to every limit he explores through stone and the deepest gloom and the deepest darkness. The surprise here is that he is man. Now, not everyone agrees with my identification here, but I think that this is the correct sense of it. That is, man can plunge any plunge into any depth. He can shoot radars and sonars through stone in order to extract wealth and to find out where oil and gold and everything else is. He can drive shafts far into the earth. He can cut down mountains. He can build artificial mountains right back up again. Man, in fact, can imitate God in setting an end to darkness. Of course, they didn't use radar and sonar back in the Oves time, but our forefathers were no schleps. Technology advances notwithstanding, the human spirit and mind is no different today than it was in the times of the Bible. And while they were technologically limited, their desires and their efforts were not limited. And believe me, they could take down mountains and they could drive shafts into pure darkness and shine light where light was not meant to shine, at least not based on its original design. 
פרץ נחל מאים גר הנשכחים מיני רגל דלו מאנוש נאו. He breaks through rivers. And again, I would argue this is not God we're talking about. This is man. Or he breaks through rivers or perhaps riverbeds where no one lives in places where travelers have forgotten, places where the population has gotten up. Dalu Nau, where they've gotten up and left. Explorations to the farthest, most remote, and most inhospitable places on the earth, if there is a prize to be won there. Not only man can man does that, but if there's a prize to be won there, man certainly does do it. Our author wasn't talking about Everest, Mount Everest, and he wasn't talking about the ocean depths where we currently send these super submarines to go down to, and he wasn't talking about the moon. But it's all just a matter of scale, not a matter of human ingenuity. We, in modern times, just keep pushing the boundaries of the impossible and the inhospitable further and further out. We shine light in places where no light could exist before, and the fact that we simply do it better than they did it two, three thousand years ago doesn't mean they didn't do it back then as well. Eretz mimena yetze lachem nepach from a land where bread grows, meaning a land that was used for agriculture, underneath it, it may be overturned like or converted into fire. And we will see why man is turning agricultural land into fire, into fiery fields in the next verse. It is a place whose stones are sapphires and whose dust contains gold. So out with the food and in with the riches. Nativ lo yidao ayet velo shezafatu ein ayah. To a road where no eagle knows and no falcon's eye has looked upon. Meaning man can go to places in search of gold and wealth. To places where even the soaring birds of prey can't spot. Lo hidrichu v'nei shachat lo ada alav shachal. Where no majestic wild beast has tread where no lion has traversed. Ada is a common Aramaic translation for the Hebrew word avar, as Rashi and Eben Ezra point out. Bachalamish shalach yado hafach mishorash arim. He, man, not God, in my opinion, man, sets his hand against hard stone. He uproots mountains from their roots. And anyone who's seen a quarry knows what this looks like exactly. But the goal here is not, the man is not tearing down mountains for material and in order to build houses. But what man is doing here is knocking down mountains in order to uncover precious metal and jewels. But surot yorim bikea in the stones he cracks open the flows and his eyes see every precious thing. This is probably referring to the veins of precious metal that are exposed when stones are cracked open and rock is cracked open. He stops up the tears or the flow of rivers, means he constructs dams, and that which is hidden comes into light. And here is the metaphor inside the metaphor. On one hand, our author is saying that man is great. He has chokhmah. He has skill and capability and wisdom to the point where he could actually manipulate the earth. The poet shows how the knowledge of man allows him to move the very earth and mountains, if not the heavens. And we will see, as contrast to this power, that even though this power is great, it does not match God's power to create not only the earth, but the heavens as well. 
inside the metaphor, I think, that there is also an, another idea. There is a metaphor hiding in the metaphor, which is that man may be able to rip apart the earth and make fertile fields uninhabitable in his quest for sapphire and gold. But no show of force, no skill, and no wisdom of man will allow God's wisdom to be quarried up from the earth as if it was precious metal. It is beyond the seemingly limitless reach of man. That is, man can can crack the earth and extract everything, but no matter how great he is and how much TNT he uses, nowhere in his efforts will he find the wisdom that is the most precious of stones, which is the wisdom of God. There may be also a third metaphor, the idea of a man ripping apart his habitat in order to go searching for gold, but that could just be maybe my own modern approach of not, you know, over-harvesting the land and, and other green kind of things. So I'm always uh, cautious that, you know, we're taking our 21st century, 21st, uh, century sensibilities and applying them to the ancient text. So I'll just leave that up there, although I'm not really sure it's here in the chapter itself. And now we get to the refrain. And the wisdom, where can she be found? And where is the source of understanding of Bina? Man can dig and excavate and blast and dam, but wisdom, true wisdom, cannot be found in any of these places. Note that Chokhmah is not just Chokhmah, but the Chokhmah, and it's personified as a woman, as she is personified in the whole, fir- the very, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs in Mishlei. She takes on uh, an existence, a personification of her own. There are other points of intersection between that book and this chapter, which we will get to. Lo yada enosh erkah velo Mankind does not know where she, wisdom, is arrayed, that is how she, where she can be found. She cannot be found in the land of the living. The word erka is a beautiful piece of poetry. It can mean the way things are laid out, like a shulchan aruch, or it can mean the value of things, the erich of something. From context, the former fits better. However, as you will see, the poet is foreshadowing the latter meaning, because he's about to be talking about the value of chokhmah. Getting back to the poem, essentially what the poet is saying, poet is going to say now is I've just told you that you're not going to be able to find wisdom, God's wisdom in the land of the living so therefore maybe I'll find her in the land of supernatural beings. Nope, nope that's not going to work either. Tahom Amar lo vi he viyam Amar ain imadi Tahom says she is not with me and Yam says not by me Tahom means the abyss of course, a deep place that existed at the beginning of God's creation of the world as it says in Genesis, The world was empty and unformed, and darkness was over the abyss, Tehom, and a powerful wind, or perhaps the Spirit of God, agitated the face of the water, which of course are the oceans before they coalesced into oceans. In Genesis, God undoes the myth of the world being created via the destruction of a supernatural creature called Tiamat. That's part of the ancient myths of the Akkadians, uh, what's called Emuna Elish in the beginning. By converting Tiamat in our Torah to, uh, into the non-living Tahom, that is Tiamat, the, the supernatural creature, creature is 
is depersonified. It's turned back into its natural, natural sense of the abyss, which was, of course, a terrible site from which the myths sprang in the first place, where the theology sprang from the first place. Yam, too, the word Yam also was a, the name of a Phoenician god of the oceans, sort of like Poseidon. Uh, he was involved with chaos and destruction, and he himself was a personification of these horrible forces of the seas as ancient man tried to grapple with them. And once again, in Genesis, God depersonifies the Yam, it's just an ocean that God creates and God controls. There's no war of the gods. Everything is, 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 is simply a tool of God's hands. At the time of our book, of course, monotheism had relegated these gods and these myths into, well, into myths, into nothing that people would believe in in a theological way. And therefore, he feels very comfortable re-personifying them here for the sake of the poetry. Because what he's doing is he's kind of knocking them down and having them say rather stupidly, don't look at me, I don't know where she is, where wisdom is. And now the author beautifully ties together the first stanza with the second one. Remember that all the gold we mined up from the earth in the first stanza? Well, let's try using it to buy God's wisdom in the second stanza. Sorry, it's not going to work. Lo yutan sugor tachterha velo yishakel kesef mechira. Gold can't be bartered for her, that is for wisdom. Sigor is another name for gold, going back to an ancient Akkadian language. Silver can't be measured out as her price. She can't be weighed out against fine gold of Ophir. Ophir was a country uh, down in the, um, uh, towards the bottom of the Red Sea, on one side or the other, perhaps in the Arabian Peninsula, perhaps on the other side on the African continent, but either way it was a source, a well-known source of gold in Tanakh, nor can she be weighed out against the most precious onyx, nor against sapphire. Keep in mind that every time we translate one of these ancient stones, it's a little bit of a guess, although sapphire and sapphire, the fact that they're, you know, that it's almost surely sapphire is a good bet, but for the rest of these, we're always taking a chance of what the real meaning is. Sal, by the way, lo tusuleh, comes from the word salah, which means to lift something in the scale, to measure its value, which is what they used to do. They used to measure the weights of the coins and the weight of the, of the things that were being bartered, bartered on an accurate, on a scale. Lo yarchenu zahav uschochit utmurata kli faz. Gold and glass cannot be valued against her, nor can she be exchanged for objects of pure gold. Remember the word erech, which here means to set a value for God's wisdom, for wisdom, that that uh, that female personification, which indicates the true wisdom of God. Remember the word erechah was used differently back in verse 13. Uh, there it meant to lay out or to spread out, and here... And here it means a value, a very nice piece of poetry. Um, I always get a kick out of this verse because it's amazing that glass was precious enough not only to be included here, but to be com- compared with gold. And of course, back then, glass was really quite a precious commodity. Uh, we're talking about the same glass in the 21st century that we buy now for a buck at Walmart. You know, you could buy a whole set of glasses for a dollar. If the ancients could see the amount of... Uh, beautiful, precious things that we all have lying around so carelessly in our homes um, and, and that we treat with so little appreciation, I think that they would be shocked. So I'm not sure when glass uh, became such that it lost its uh, ability for poets to want to write about it. Uh, but, oh well, times change, and back then they certainly thought uh, a lot of it. 
רמות וגביש לא ייזכר משך חוכמה מפנינים. רמות is some kind of precious item, maybe it's coral, and גביש is short for אל גביש, which the Greek translates, the Greek is one of the oldest translations that we have, so the Greek translates it as crystal. Uh, so neither of the, these things should be mentioned, lo yizacher, which means, which means sort of like, uh, walking to a store and trying to, uh, buy a piece of gold with a toothpick. Which means, you know, don't make me laugh, don't even mention that. Similarly absurd is meshech chokma mipninim, to purchase this wisdom with pearls. Meshech means to pull, limshoch, and in Jewish law, uh, paying cash wasn't enough essentially to take ownership in a transaction. The purchaser would have to pull the purchased item in order to take possession. Lo yachenu pitdat kush, bechetan tahor lo tisule. The pitda, the perhaps topaz, maybe of kush, which was an African territory immediately south of Egypt of the time, cannot be valued against her, that is against wisdom. She will not be weighed out against the purest of pure gold. So the question remains, and we return to the refrain, which asks the question, And the wisdom, that is the real wisdom, God's wisdom, where can she be found? And where is the source of bina, of understanding? She is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed from the birds of the skies. Avadon v'maved amru be'ozneinu shamanu shima. Mot and Abaddon, again, two even more powerful supernatural creatures, the gods of the underworld, and again being used here as metaphors, of course, they said, we heard a rumor about it with our own ears, which means that's the best they could do. We say, we surely heard the rumor about wisdom's whereabouts, but when you ask them where it is, they have no clue. Elohim hevin darkav, ohu yadat mekoma, God, meaning only God understands her way, that is, knows where she is. He knows her place. Because he sees to the end of the world, everything under the heavens is in his view. That is not to say that wisdom is in this world, that God's wisdom is somewhere in this world hidden. And if only man could see everything, could look in every single location, finally he would find it. Rather, it's a prerequisite for... Achieving God's wisdom, the prerequisite is being able to see everything. It's having control over every part of nature as its creator. In fact, by definition, Chochmah may be defined as the mastery to create and to be able to see the entire world as follows. To make a limit for the wind and set a measure on the waters. And this is, of course, a reference to that verse in Genesis that I cited before. That is the, the spirit of God or this great wind blew over the, the water and God contains it in order to make his creation. The waters were overflowing the earth and he set a measure to them to allow civilization to come into existence. In his making a limit to the rain, that is, the wisdom itself is his ability to set a limit to the rain, to control the movements of thunderclouds. Then, or perhaps by definition, in the acts of this creation, he cites her. He cites wisdom and he counts her. Indeed, he examines her thoroughly. Vayomer la adam hein yirat adunai 
he chokma v'sur meira bina. And then he says to the man, behold, hein, yirat adunai he chokma. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. And avoiding evil is true understanding. Notice the definite article of man. It's not that God speaks to any man. He speaks to the man. And I think this is a reference not to Eo, but to Adam Harishon, the first man who was given the task of taking care of God's creations. Also note the name Adonai here, which is the Israelite name for God. Um, and also note that essentially this verse is a paraphrase from Mishlei, chapter 9, verse 10. So I think in the middle of this universalistic book, which is really meant for everyone and, and almost completely uses God's universal name, I think that the author here is winking at us, or Eob is winking at us, his Jew, the author's Jewish audience. Um, a lot, there are a lot of unknowns in this chapter, um, but I think the message is that only by being the creator is real wisdom accessible. And in fact, the acts of creation, his ability to create and sustain the universe, may be the definition of what Chochmah is. The ability to not only know everything, but just by setting your mind on it, as if God has a mind, but I mean, by God focusing on something, that allows it to remain and sustain in creation. So the closest we could get to that, because we can't get anywhere near that, we can't touch that at all. So the closest we could get that is like Adam Harishon, is like the first Adam, which is simply to fear God and to avoid evil, which means to follow his moral code. By listening to God, we essentially play a role in sustaining the creations that he has created. So maybe this is the message that he's trying to uh, convey to us. Or maybe not. It's a very difficult uh, a chapter. Rashi puts this whole chapter in, in a completely different understanding in historical terms. Plus he sees the first stanza, not as I said, which was man's uh, nearly incomparable power, but God's power. Uh, other commentators go in completely different directions. So you have to make up your own mind here, not only about what Chochmah is and how it's defined here and how one achieves it, but you have to make up your mind about what's the place of uh, this wisdom poem. What is its place in the overall structure of the Book of Eov? Who is speaking it? Who is it meant for? What really is it trying to convey? other than that fear of God and staying away from evil is the only way to achieve true wisdom.